ESD Now episode 418, the greatest time in history to be a creator. Recorded on the 25th of August 2021. This week's episode of BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now for the online backups for the truly paranoid. everyone this episode has no questions in the uh, last section but the good news is we have an interview today tom and i will interview michael w lucas famous author of fiction and non-fiction books and uh we will talk about his latest writings uh other stuff he's been into like TLS Mastery, Get Sync Murder, Getting Paid for Creative Work, Writing Tools and Techniques. So enjoy our interview that we have for you this week. We welcome back to the show Michael W. Lucas of a lot of fame, especially in the audio, well, not audio, <laughs> in the author space, uh, writing books for, uh, well, I would say techies and non-techies. Uh, it's a little bit of both. Um, so frequent listeners may know Michael already from his many previous visits he had on the show. He must have been the most interviewed person on this podcast by last count. Um, but nevertheless, let's check in what he's up to his latest. And um, we hear uh, you were busy and that's good. So your latest tech book is TLS Mastery in the Tux and Beastie editions. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. Um TLS Mastery is uh, one of those topics that people think they know, but they're mistaken. <laughs> uh, so I, I did a deep dive into the current state of transport layer security, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to use it. Uh, I learned a bunch of things that did not make me a happier person. But my TLS configurations are much better than they used to be. Mm -hmm. And I'd been, I guess there are Tux and Beastie editions with the only difference between them is the cover art. If you are a Linux fan, you can buy the Tux edition, which has a parody of, of the uh, Munch's scream on the cover with Tux as the character screaming and Beasties coming up in the background. Or, you know, the wholesome BSD folks can get the Beastie edition with, uh, again, the scream parody, but starring Beastie. With reverse with roles. With reverse yeah. roles. <laughs> so... Okay, so who should read this book? Is it more for sysadmins or everyday It's definitely users? a sysadmin book. Mm -hmm. uh, regular people who do nothing with computers should not touch this book. Okay. And I, I've been asked, well, if I already know TLS, should I read this book? And I would say, if you know why putting a host name in a certificate common name is a problem, then you probably don't need it. If you are using the OpenSSL wizard that helps you make certificate requests, then you need this book. Okay. Yeah, it seems like it's useful. How, how thick is it compared to other books it's, you wrote? It's about 45,000 words, which makes it a little shorter than the SNMP book. Oh yes, I have that one. <laughs> the very special edition. Um, the Network Nomicon as it's called. Uh, yeah, very good book. I haven't finished it yet and I have yet to implement some of the things, but had some early re results that I probably wouldn't have gotten by Googling. So probably this is the next one I get the TLS mastery. So one. Michael, the, the the book's quite recent, and so I, I imagine you managed to encompass the the changes that come with with TLS one point three, um, and and our and our new modern world. How do you think the 
the interface that sysadmins have to, to TLS has changed over the years. And do you think it's getting better? <sighs> it's a little different. I don't know that it's better. They've, they've done some things that made TLS debugging more difficult. Uh, right now, the only TLS versions you should be using are 1.2 and 1.3. And a lot of organizations have built middleware boxes for inspecting TLS 1.2 traffic. But when TLS 1.3 came out, all of these vendors didn't want to update their software or couldn't deploy it properly. So they wrote TLS 1.3 in a way that it can be disguised as TLS 1.2 so that it would pass through these middleware boxes. And, and this proves one, uh, the middleware boxes are not really that useful. Uh, and two, we have to learn to kind of contort around that class of problem and all the, the related sorts of problems. So is it better? Is it worse? I don't know. It's a bunch of exceptions and we have to discard everything we knew about SSL and TLS 1.1 and below and sort out what is current, what's really TLS 1.3, what is fake, what is TLS 1.3 faking as TLS 1.2, and what's really TLS 1.2. So do you, do you think for, for sysadmins we're going to manage to move away from um, having to use third-party tools like the SSL labs check to verify configs? Do you think we're getting closer to sensible defaults? Depends on the program. I found applications that are still using SSL, which kind of horrified me. I, there are lots of places that are still using lousy cryptography algorithms with TLS 1.2. I think that the TLS 1.3 defaults are more sensible. There's only six algorithms that you can use, and they're all pretty solid. So as, as TLS 1.3 becomes more widespread, uh, I think it will make our lives easier. On the downside, there is this US government standard called FIPS, which your company is supposed, if you do certain sorts of government work, you're supposed to comply with FIPS. Uh, it's not a matter of right or wrong or cryptographically secure. It's just these are the rules and you will follow them. And there is no TLS 1.3 FIPS approved browser as of a couple months ago. So it's going to be a while. Okay. And, and so I guess... Um... For me and my work, I, I touch on what's happening in the ITF and, and especially with Quick and TLS one point three and and Quick are are good bad fellows and they are to me sort of the, the evolution we're seeing in the in the web. As a as a fiction author, do you think um, Quick is going to rise to prominence? Are you, are you willing to try and gaze into the future? Oh, gazing into the future on Quick. Well, keeping in mind this opinion is worth every penny you have paid for it as in nothing. I think it could happen. I'm not convinced that it will just because of inertia. There's a lot of corporate sysadmins who are, they learned how to do things back in the day and they're not really into updating their skills which is sad as, as someone who works in, in I, I worked for years in the more internet industry and we love the next evolution. We want to see the next bright thing. Uh, but I think 
quick and corporations will be slow. Okay, I, I think that's a really good segue as well. Um, so in in recent years, and I actually think for quite a long time, you've written about the the, the technologies that you find scary. And so when you released um, Pseudo Mastery, you talked about it was one of the scariest tools that sysadmins only half know. And recently yes. you've published a book on SNMP and now TLS. Which component in the modern software stack that's left scares you the most? What scares me? Oh, geez. Um, wow. Well, the, the, the quick answer to that is, of course, whatever has bitten me most recently. Oh, that's, I think, see, I, I haven't approached, I haven't planned my next books on that same level. So I haven't really thought about this. But there are still horrors left, right? Oh, there are many horrors left out there. I, I think really that the scariest thing in technology now is interaction. The way all these different pieces we've created play together and the unintended consequences there. And I've, I've considered trying to write a book about them, but it would just be a, you know, 200 pages of disasters with no real lessons other than the internet was a mistake and we should go back to the trees. <laughs> I mean, that might make a, a great April Fool's book, actually. Uh, the internet was a disaster. <laughs> in the didn't get better in, in the itf we actually published uh um a research document which was uh lessons learned from developing transport protocols it was just it was just a big list of mistakes everything we tried <laughs> and everything that went wrong um it was it was a great exercise seeing that come through because we've made it's been a lot of mistakes uh the things that have stuck have always been very good if if that's online you should put a link in the show notes yeah of course i'll pull it oh up. yeah we should. That that makes good reading for for people who want to really get a scare. Yes. And, <laughs> and and so talking of scares, that that's a great segue into to the second book that you have uh, you have published this year. Um, I I read uh, Get Commit Murder, which is the the um the, the first book in this in the series you seem to have started. Um, and it it really hyped me up to go to my first BSD can in uh, in twenty twenty. And instead, something else happened. Um, <laughs> that's I'm good sorry. advertising, yeah. <laughs> Alan has been demanding a, a sequel to Git Commit Murder for a long time. Um, and so I wonder if for, familiars, uh, for readers unfamiliar with the, the first book, Git Commit Murder, could you maybe just um, introduce what the, the book is about and then maybe what they could expect in the sequel? Well, uh, Git Commit Murder is set... It's what we call a cozy murder mystery. A, a cozy mystery is kind of like Agatha Christie. You have quirky characters. There's no real gore. Uh, it's it's kind of gentle murder, where it has you know it has a happy ending and the good guys will win. And basically, it it's a a bunch of sysadmins are at a Unix conference for uh, Berkeley-derived Unixes in Ottawa. Any relationship to any real Unix conferences is purely coincidental. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, Who would do such a thing? It's The conference is held at the Byward University of science and technology. And essentially our, our, the main character has social anxiety uh, and ADD and has to somehow stumble through a conference that he's been stuck going to. So that was the first one. And in the second one, it's the same character. Uh, and he, for work, his employer is sponsoring a Linux conference. 
and he gets stuck working the table for the weekend. And, you know, and then there are bodies. <laughs> so I'm fairly sure more than one. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in Git Commit Murder, there were some very familiar characters. Are um, they? And especially anybody that had been to a BSD conference might have been seeing ghosts as they as they read the book. Do, do we get the same treat in a Git Sync Murder? Well, that's part of the surprise, right? You wouldn't read it. Otherwise. In a lot of ways, <laughs> we are stereotypes. I can walk into any Unix conference and there are hordes of pasty, middle-aged, bald, pudgy, white guys uh, talking in language that nobody outside the conference would understand. So... Uh, so yes, people may recognize themselves, but um, it's not really themselves. So there's no, oh, can you add me to this book? Please, please, no, please. No, I, I did Go. not take mm. requests to be murdered. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I, I not... understand, Benedict, you're disappointed, but... No, it's not about me. It's not a, it never is. Um, <laughs> We've got to find out who Benedict's trying I, to get rid of. <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, um, so since we're on the subject of writing, I was uh, waking up last Saturday and I had an idea. Why not write a little story for the FreeBSD journal that I uh, <laughs> write a lot for called The Z-Pool Boy? Uh, as you might have expected, it's a love story with and for ZFS. And so that kind of went wild and now I have like too many pages already. It's like, it's really too many, you know, um, terms from ZFS put into a story. Good. Yeah. And the, 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 yeah, the, the stuff that I struggle with is the dialogues. Like I have two people and they talk and it's kind of difficult to kind of like know you know what to talk about and how that should start and how it should end that's that's really difficult i haven't done things like that it is difficult uh read books with good dialogue and see how they do it yeah yeah that's that's probably a good suggestion so i, I can read a few excerpts this is just a few sentences from the beginning um <clears throat> The pool was shaded by beautiful Merkle trees growing around the wall, mirroring themselves in the water as if to validate their existence. One corner held the fireplace, where countless sea pool events had been held in the past. The firewood was neatly arranged into a lock structure, and things like that. You know, this is this goes on forever, uh, with all the ZFS terms uh, coming later. So yeah, I'm not sure how this is going, and if they ever will publish that. There's an upcoming uh, what's it called storage. Uh, there issue is. In December. Oh, you should definitely yeah, submit that. It's yeah, it's it's probably not my best writing, but at least it's they 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 would probably allow me to to publish that to just see where this is going. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this aside. Um, What's next? Ah, yeah. Since uh, you're a self-publishing author for quite a number of years now. Uh, do you use some special tools like a spell and grammar checkers that <laughs> should help you? Well, uh, I grammar checkers are the work of the devil and should always be forcibly removed from any software. Yeah. Uh, I do run spell check before mm -hmm. sending a manuscript to technical at reviewers. But it's not generally useful day to day because I spend a couple hours saying, yes, that's a word. Yes, that's a word. Yes, that's a public mm. key. Take it. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, with all the special terms, yes. it has, has no idea about Spell those. Spell checking the Unix command line is not fun. Mm. But what other tools do you have? You probably would have something that does a bit of tech editing or some what a tech editor would no. do. Nothing? No, no. Um, 
the only, you run commands in a terminal window. You rerun the command until it does the thing you want. Or you figure out why it's different than the last time you ran the command with a slightly different flag. Yeah, uh, right. Copy that. Paste it into your document, take it apart, figure out why it worked, and explain all of that clearly and succinctly. Yeah, that's, that's probably the way. That's really the only way to do it. So when you talk about writing, Michael, and, and pasting into a document, are you are you working in uh, a word processor to, to format your books? Yes, yeah. Uh, this, this actually comes up surprisingly often. Sadly, if you are in publishing you're stuck in Microsoft Word. So, and that this is an FAQ on, on my website even. Uh, the publishing industry, especially for tightly formatted documents, it's all Word. You can get by in LibreOffice if you are strictly working in fiction. But I make a point, uh, especially for the self-published stuff, uh, my books are available in China, in Malaysia, in South Africa. And all of these little independent ebook stores have written their own software. And they are expecting bug for bug compatibility with Microsoft Word. And that is the killer. I would much rather use LaTeX or LibreOffice or Emacs. I wrote Absolute BSD in Emacs. Ooh, Do wow. you find, Michael, that you're doing um, a, a lot of <laughs> a lot of re return edits in the manuscript? So are, are are you getting a lot of cycles where you're in Word and in Word and in Word? Um, I'm not quite sure what you mean by return edits, but let me see. Well, maybe, the... maybe maybe I can give you an example. Um, so I, I, I do some some commercial writing and I've, I've written articles for Clara and, and Clara's workflow is they take Word. Um, and the, the way I, I work around this is I compose documents in Markdown and then I use Pandoc to um, output a Word document. And so I have all my formatting and all my command lines, all the command line interactions in a nice file. I can edit with Vim and then it goes into Word and I can do final edits there. Okay. But if I had to do a cycle back, then I'd probably be... I'd be worried. And you should be worried. <laughs> um, yeah. General, well, I've worked hard over the years to become a one draft writer. I, I write it correctly the first time and then ship it off to technical editors. And my reviewers point out all of my boneheaded mistakes. Uh, and then I go back in the document and I, I, I fix those. And then it goes to a copy editor who points out other boneheaded mistakes. And so I, I generally go through the document three times. There are times that I do rip out text and rewrite it from scratch. But in general, I, I hold the passes through the manuscript down to a minimum. Mm -hmm. That's a bit different from what we do in the doc project, right? Yes. There's a lot of editing done uh, on the existing well, the, parts. The FreeBSD handbook and FAQ are collaborative. And you... Right. That's really a question of... You add... You're either refining information that's already there, tearing out something obsolete and putting in new text. Uh, like when mm -hmm. package add was replaced by package. Right? Oh yeah, that took a lot of work. Uh, so I found recently a tool that can highlight um, mistakes in active versus passive voice and also some weasel words like few multiple yep. things like that and i applied that to the zfs chapter it turns out a lot of the stuff that i wrote yep. was in passive voice maybe because and is that a problem that you usually have or is it just normal for you 
Well, I, I just counted and the, the TLS book was my 45th book. Um, I have a good idea when to use passive voice. There are times it's necessary. Yeah, it's not completely, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it shouldn't completely right. not be used. It's just well, in technical writing for the handbook, I found the sentences become clearer and less are, long. The thing about using active voice in writing about technology is that it forces you to look at the interactions between components. It's not the, it's not the Z pool is scrubbed. It is this thing mm -hmm. scrubs the Z pool. Yeah. The active and, part and that becomes... provides a little extra information. Mm -hmm. So you yeah. have to know when do you want to highlight those interactions and when do you want to just make these, these firm blunt statements. Yeah, this, it's like this and no yeah. other. Because I also think that if you put a lot of sentences like can be installed or can be changed to this setting, it leaves a lot of, oh, you can do this, but you can't. It's like it's an escape route to not be too yes. clear. Yes, writing is hard. Yeah, and as yeah. nerds, we want <laughs> to say all the options. And Of course, like and, limits are yeah, not for and us. And we want to know all the <laughs> options. And yeah, yeah, uh, I'm still learning. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly sure I'll, I'll get better. I, I'll probably put up the ZFS chapter um, in active voice as a review soon so that people uh, can give feedback. So, so, Michael, when you published the, the last uh, Absolute OpenBSD, you said that if, if you'd had your way, that the book would have been uh, four times the size and twice as heavy and would have been released in 2025. <laughs> how, how do you decide what to cull when you've got such a smorgasbord of stuff to start from? Well, let, let's, let's look at OpenBSD in particular. I'm, I'm turning that way next. Um, there are, the question really is, how many users of this thing must know this topic? If, if you're using OpenBSD, you must know about storage. You must know how to configure the network. Uh, you must know about pledge and privilege separation. And then you have this tier of stuff that is probably nice to know. The web server. A lot of people will run a web server on OpenBSD. Um, and then there's this third tier of stuff that I think is really cool that very few people need to know. Um, the OSPF and OSPF6 daemons. I'm, I'm thrilled that they're there and I think they're very cool. The number of people who need them is minuscule. So the goal is to cover everything you must know and then p take my best guess at the nice to know within the, the space limitations. You must have a hard time when you, you see topics that are, you know, maybe not not going to justify a book in themselves and but are also not essential to know you must it must be difficult to see these topics and then have to cut them yeah yeah there are things i want to take a deep dive into um like the 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 next absolute open bsd uh i'd like to do some I'd like to do some investigating into SMTPD and VMM. So those, those are both topics that would be ripe, perhaps even for a small book. But uh, I believe it's Aaron A. Glenn was saying he, he wanted to write a book on SMTPD. And, and Peter Hanstein said he might do something on VMM. So I'm kind of 
I have lots of books to write. If you want to write a book in the BSD space, I will happily let you. You want it? Here, take it. <laughs> no, no competition there. It, yeah. It, it sounds, Michael, like you need to run a, a, a BSD technical book authors workshop so you can offload some of your less interesting ideas. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> well, it's, it's not that they're less interesting. I mean, uh, virtualization, for example, is cool. Running mail servers is legitimately difficult today. Um, but, you know, if someone else is willing to do any piece of the work, I'm happy to let them have it. Don't. So, so, <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's great. I, I love the encouragement. Um, so you sort of mentioned that maybe OpenBSD will be your, your next idea. And if I, if I can guess from the pattern, I imagine that might be a, a traditionally published technical book. Um, but you've been self-publishing your work for, for quite a long time. And I think the first self-published book you did was SSH Mastery. I'm yes. Not 100%. Um, have, have your views on self-publishing changed in the last, last decade? Has it, has it become easier to distribute the book globally than it was at the start? Oh, it's unquestionably easier, and it unquestionably takes a higher degree of skill. Um, hmm, I'm not entirely self-publishing for the last 10 years. Uh, like for the, the latest Absolute FreeBSD, that's only a couple years old. And what I did is I self-published several smaller books, like the ZFS books, uh, and, and some of that content got remixed into absolute FreeBSD third edition. So, so you see that you have a, a, a mixture of, uh, ideas and a research process and you're continually putting out, out books yep. and occasionally the larger concepts can go to a trad publisher and you can self-publish the rest. Generally, I mean, the... Trad publishing is not going to be terribly interested in a book like SNMP Mastery. There's enough money right. in it that I can do okay self-publishing. But the trad publisher needs to sell a lot more copies than I do to break even. And there's, there's also uh, physical production considerations. Uh... Like the, the absolute books are thicker and they use a special binding so that they hold together. And and the important thing for me is that readers get a quality product. I, I think I can definitely I can definitely confirm that. The the books from, from No Starch who I think published the, the Absolute series are um some of the, the highest quality books I've ever seen and the the print on demand books you get from from the big rainforest service and, and others do tend to just fall apart. The cheap uh, paper and binding. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're okay for a couple hundred pages, but I would not want to self-publish an 800 page book like the absolute books. I, I will say, so um, Ed Mastery, which, which I have um, is, is a much higher quality um, self-published book than um I think I have a book called like uh, iOS Exploit Programming One, uh, and this book just fell apart. I mean, it managed one reading, and then the bindings were all coming away. And Ed Mastery has survived multiple people handling it because it's a fantastic object. Um, so there's definitely a range of stuff, and I think you're picking very well. I I do the best I can with the tools I've got, and yes, there are a, there are a range of design considerations in a self-published book. And that, that's why I tell people that self-publishing is a tactic. It is not a strategy. Okay, I, I think that's a really good point as well. And so I, I think if we were to look at your, your writing career, um, there's been a mix where you were working as a sysadmin and you were, you were writing on the side and you seem to be writing a lot more than you were in the past. And that seems to be because you're mixing self-publishing and crowdfunding with the Patreon with writing larger books. Um, do you think having a, a Patreon is allowing you to make take bigger risks as a writer than you could have before? Oh, absolutely. Uh, without Patreon, uh, and I, I run my own Patreon workalike on my website, actually. 
So I, I have the, because if, if I can do it myself, I'm going to. Um, the money from that really helped in 2020. Because that, that was oh, guaranteed income. That. And for a while there, we didn't know uh, what was going to happen. And things have kind of stabilized now, thankfully. But uh, the, the crowdfunding, the sponsorships, my patronizers, all of that really have helped an immense amount. Because there's a, I, I have a couple kinds of readers at speaking financially. Uh, I live in Detroit. Here, $100 is serious money. If you are one of the folks, if you live in Silicon Valley or New York City or, you know, London, England, $100 is really not much. And those folks are happy to to give me that, to get their name in a book because they want the book to happen. That is, that's absolutely invaluable. And, and the folks who, if you sign up for my Patreon, uh, either either through me or Patreon itself, for five bucks a month, you get a copy of everything I have the rights to that I publish. And there's, I'm surprised how many people signed up for that. Well, you can you can go to the domain name patronizemwl.com. <laughs> and that points that takes you to the page on my website that points you to Patreon or direct to me. So if, if you want to patronize me, I'm I am here for your money donation pleasure. You're not allergic. Yeah. yeah. And I'm fairly sure that people get enough back to their uh, money donation, if you want to call it that, so that it's not, oh, why am I paying this guy? It's definitely I'm a lot of return. how many people stick around because I, I tried this at first and I thought, this is a scam. Nobody is going to go for it. But at the end of 2020, I reorganized everything to give more benefit for less money because I felt bad about how badly I was scamming people and they're sticking around. <laughs> yeah, they, they apparently want yeah, to help and you. I'm, I'm grateful that. to them all. Yeah. Yeah. Because we are also thinking about running something like that, but we give everything away anyway in the, like the episodes we put out every week. But sometimes we get requests by email, like, Hey, I like your show very much. Can I somehow, you know, say thank you with a little oh, bit of Oh, you money. should absolutely put up a tip jar. Oh, yeah, that, I, I started a with thing. a tip jar and I was very surprised at how many people sent money. Uh, well, okay, we'll think about it. We'll talk to Alan a little bit. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, it's been free for a long yeah. time and uh, it, it should remain this way. It's just people who want to show their appreciation that we won't be... Uh, allergic to them giving us money in and you, small amounts, you could whatever. easily do some patreon style benefits like um uh for a, a certain level you get invited to a skype hangout with the hosts that you know you'll you'll do one every quarter and you can like take questions direct from the audience. We could um, we, we should ask uh, JT how hard this would be, Benedict. But we could just put out an ums and ers edition where you get the unedited audio. You just have us coughing all the time. Absolutely, people go for that. <laughs> a whole a whole hour of that. Get get the twenty minutes you're missing. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah, the 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 cut oh, yes. from the director. <laughs> what fell to the cutting floor? Um, <laughs> here we go. The, uh, which is a good uh, sidestep, actually. Thank, thanks for the tip. We'll, we'll consider it. Um, so there's your book, The Cashflow for Creators, uh, that you also yep. wrote like last year or so, or the year before. Do you have some like tips for other people trying to get into the writing it, business or author? Really, it's the, that book is for anyone who's in any creative thing. 
and and basically it's just a lot of business books don't apply to the one person shop they're all about how do you pay hmm. your employees when you open a sandwich shop and and that's fine but for for programmers who work alone uh, or web developers it it's not applicable really it's about controlling how much money you spend treat your business as a business from day one give it its own bank account see how money really flows in and out and and start small start treating it that way when it's small so that when it becomes big you understand how it works i mean i i was publishing books my first technology book came out, what, 15 years before I became a full-time writer. So I have a very good idea how hmm. the business works. Okay, that's certainly good advice. Because I think a lot of people during the pandemic were thinking about, like like you are doing, can I find some other um, you know, income streams, whatever they are? And this might be a lot of things that people are good at potentially writing whatever it is could doesn't have to be books can also be i don't know copy well, this, editing or something this is the um, greatest time in history to be an independent creator whether you're a web designer or a writer or a, a copy editor or a podcaster whatever uh we can reach our audiences in ways that were unimaginable before. Uh, I know game designers, not computer game designers, like tabletop game designers, who are doing small games that only sell a few hundred at a time, but they keep doing them and they're making real money doing something they love. It is amazing what you can distribute to people, what you can have manufactured. Truly an amazing time for creators today. I don't think we've ever seen a time oh, like it in history. Yeah, and these, these are, are the good, good parts, parts of the internet. This is what I up. hoped for when <laughs> back in the 80s. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so there's definitely potential. And yes, people, we, we linked uh, Michael's Cashflow for Creators book in the show notes if you want to uh, read that and get your little business started. And, and finally, Michael uh, get, shared, shared us a note about uh, a unique book that he's making available through an auction to support anti-human trafficking efforts. Do you want to tell us a little more? Sure. Um, my wife is a member of Seroptimus International. Um, they do a 5k race every fall to help anti-human trafficking efforts and this year they are raising money to help trafficking survivors clear their records if you are if, if you've been held prisoner and forced to work in any capacity um, often you have to commit crimes just to escape and they're, they are raising money to help people clear their records. So, um, this year, sadly, 5K races are just not a thing. They're having a virtual 5K where you can sign up and you can run the 5K on your own, which is just not the same. So I'm, I'm, I have a special edition of FreeBSD Mastery Jails. It, it's the Bail Bond Denied Edition, where I drew the cover. Because if I was in jail and they denied me bond, I would have to design my own covers. Yeah. And, and only five of these exist. And... I've been reserving them for conferences that I go to that have charity auctions. Well, 
they, cons are not a thing right now, so I'm auctioning this one off online. The, the bad news is, uh, well, the good and bad news, someone has bid $1,000 on it. Ooh. Yes, that's great. Okay. And he has already donated the money to the Seroptimists. So win, win or lose, oh, even he better. is in. So if... I'm serious, yeah. Um, if you were to bid $1,001 and win, you would double the amount of money raised. Now, uh, on okay. the other hand, yeah. if you were to bid again and the current leader had to, you know, file another bid, well, you've made someone else spend even more money because he's committed. <laughs> so, you know, if you can run him up to 1500 yeah. bucks, uh, then you're, you're really putting the pressure on someone for a good cause. And he, he's a, the winner is a nice guy and everything, but I really hope someone crushes him. <laughs> In the last minute. <laughs> so, so how long does this September go? September 25th. It's on my blog. Uh, I'm sure you'll have the link in the show notes. Yeah, and it's still um, valid uh, yes, when this episode that, comes out. that's why it's running so long. And I, I would just love to see uh, my people give some actual help to people who really need it. Because we... Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've heard a lot of things... Uh, bad in the pandemic but this is also a thing that's going on in well, parallel and, and to that our community often raises money for causes uh i believe in bsd can 2019 we raised well over a thousand bucks for the, the homeless shelter sometimes that auction runs up to several thousand dollars like uh, the time someone donated a server to be auctioned off. Uh, the IX people didn't want to try to get it back in the States, so they just auctioned it off. <laughs> why not? Yeah, why not? So I mean, too we, much hustle. We help people, so <laughs> let, let's help some people. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh... Even though we're not the richest people in the world, we still have money to spend on, on these We're efforts. better off than a lot. Uh, hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, still in the computer industry. Um, uh, yeah, so I think that's all about it. Uh, do you have anything else? Uh, do you want to announce or some future plans that you can announce already or tell us about before we let you go? Uh, let's see. I'm, I'm working on a DNS sec book right now, the second edition of that. That's open for sponsorships if you're interested. And uh, the cover uh, I'll have posted on my blog by the time this episode airs. Uh, I'm, okay. I'm very happy with that. And uh, after that, I'm turning to OpenBSD. I'll be writing a few small OpenBSD books and self-publishing them before I remix it all into a giant absolute book. Uh, yeah, good to have. Any updated uh, ZFS book maybe with the new features it can do now in plan? Planned, yes, but I really need to update the OpenBSD book first. Mm. As, yeah. as I said, yeah. if anybody wants to write BSD books, there's room. Please join yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you, heard, you heard it. We have it on, uh, on tape. Uh, it's not completely Michael's domain. I mean, as oh, yes. Peter Hanstein, he's also yes, writing he does. books. So. And I, I hope he does do uh, something with the OpenBSD virtualizer. I just... Uh, this last year and a half has been rough on a lot of people. So, mm. so many plans yeah. are have been scrambled. Yeah, put on hold or completely uh, evaporated in some ways. But 
yeah, you never know what what happens. If people are stuck at home, they also get ideas uh, and yes. let creativity strike. <laughs> okay, then I think uh, we're done for today. Thank you, Michael, for yet another interview you uh, allowed us to torture you with. Um, <laughs> anything from you, Tom? No, I, I think that's great. Thanks again, Michael, for speaking to us. It's been really interesting. My pleasure. Anytime. Yeah. Good luck with your books. Until next time. Until next time, of course. <laughs> so that was the interview we had with Michael W. Lucas. I uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of BSD Now. But before we let you go, we should mention that Tarsnap sponsored this episode and has for a number of uh, well, episodes now. And Tarsnap is also available as a book from Michael W. Lucas, if you haven't seen that yet. The uh, book describes everything about Tarsnap, how to use it, how to get started, what the Tarsnap backup service is, how it works, and many of the other special things you might want to know about to use Tarsnap to your maximum advantage. We like to use Tarsnap because it's easy to use and reliable and very uh, easy to keep our costs in check because it's pay as you go. We charge our accounts and when it's used up, we get a little email. Hey, your account is running low. Why don't you uh, pay something to continue making backups? And it includes, of course, uh, the security that is provided by Tarsnap, the very paranoid nature that it provides by encrypting all your files locally. And then only when it's encrypted, the files leave your machine as you know, and when one day you need them, hopefully never, you will be able to download them and no one else can grab it on the cloud and make heads and tails of it. As so soon as you have your key, create a couple backups and you will see why we love Tarsnap so much. Check out Michael W. Lucas's book, Tarsnap Mastery, and of course his other books, and then we'll let you go for now until next week for another episode of BSD Now. <laughs>